Good morning. Would you thank Tim Head and the band for leading us this morning? Appreciate their ministry. You know, we have great freedom in Christ. We are given liberty. We're given freedom to come and go and, and pretty much do a lot of things as we please in that liberty. And over my Christian life, I have struggled with uh, this illustration of a pendulum of legalism, liberty, and license. That legalism, of course, is a system of do's and don'ts. That if I do these things and don't do these things, and I can say I'm a, I'm a pretty good Christian. Of course, the insidiousness of legalism is not only trying to measure ourselves, but when we lay that on other people. They, do, they shouldn't do that. They should be doing this. Licentiousness, or license, of course, doing whatever I want because I know I'm forgiven. I know grace abounds. I know I can't lose my salvation. I know I'm secure in that fact. And so both extremes are wrong. We don't live legalistically, do's and don'ts, that's the law that can never make us right. We don't live licentiously, knowing that anything and everything we do can be forgiven. And so somewhere in the middle is this balance of liberty. Liberty is maturity, living faithfully and obediently. And just in recent weeks, as I've thought through that pendulum I have explained a oh, hundred times, I thought it's a really bad example. Uh, both extremes are wrong, but liberty is not in the middle of licentiousness and legalism. <laughs> it's not being not quite as legalistic and not quite as licentious. It's somewhere in the middle I can economize and say, okay, now I'm living a life of liberty in Christ because I'm not quite so legalistic, not quite so licentiousness, <laughs> licentious. So perhaps we need to forget the pendulum for the sake of liberty is not in the middle, but ask the question, what does maturity in Christ look like, not measured by do's and don'ts, not uh, sort of absolved because we're saved and positionally secure. Or to say in a very simple way perhaps, um, how do we live in the world and not of the world? For me, that is probably the greatest question in my Christian life. I look so much like the world in which I live, how am I different? How am I distinct? It's not license. It's not legalism. Those don't make me different in the world. But Christ has admonished us to be in the world, but not of it. How much are you in the world and not of the world? Now, if you've lived most of your life here in Middle Tennessee, you have a microcosm of your world wherever you lived or grew up. If you've moved around, if you're a military, if you've lived abroad, if you've lived in the Northeast, California, whatever, you have a different perspective on things. Because cultures are interesting. If we were all to move to um, the Northeast, uh, many of us would have a rude awakening. It's a different culture. Number one, they are not nearly as nice and kind as we are here in the South. Uh, you're not going to find as many people that are going to call themselves Christian like you will here. We're all Christians here, right? Everybody's Christian in Middle Tennessee. Um, you're going to have a different cultural experience. At first, you won't like people, restaurants, traffic patterns, cost of living. It'll all be different for you. And then in weeks, months, a couple, three years, you'll settle in. You'll visit back Middle Tennessee, and you'll kind of come home, so to speak, and it'll feel warm and comfortable again. Then you move to California. Or you move, you live abroad. My point is, when you take your sphere of experience and you move that to another place, things are very different. And it takes time to adjust to acclimate, to understand that culture. We're spiritually otherworldly people. 
We're to be different in a culture that we become so familiar with how it works. We compare ourselves to one another, where we live, what we drive, what we wear, music we like, engagements we go to, and we have this sort of look. I mean, after all, look at how we dress. We all dress kind of similarly. There's still a few people that wear a coat and tie. God bless you. I always joke at the Brentwood campus about all the suits and ties go to the left and all the other people go to the right. All the blue jeans go to the Brentwood campus. It's just a culture. Spiritually, how are we in the world and that other world? Because dressing a certain way, speaking a certain way, not doing things or doing certain things or living freely does not a Christian make, right? How do you and I live in a tension of being in the world and not of the world. As we continue our study in the counterclockwise geographical survey of these seven churches of Revelation, if you have your Bible open to Revelation 3, we're going to look at Sardis today. Sardis was like many cities of that time. In fact, most of Asia, they were uh, run by the Roman Empire, ruled by the Roman Empire. They were wealthy. They were located on an east-west commercial trade route. And this is important for the analogy that Christ is going to give us as well as the application. Uh, They were known for their fabrics and their dyes, among other things. Excavations have uncovered a large school there, a large synagogue that was occupied by Jewish exiles as well as a church. As with most Asian cities, they were rampantly pulled into idolatry. They had a temple of Artemis. It's the fourth largest temple in the world. We've talked, Lloyd talked about the one in Ephesus. This is a different one, obviously. Artemis is part of the Greek and Roman culture, the different Ionic, Doric, and Corinthian columns. If you ever study those things in architectural school or just if you're observant when you look at buildings, it's still there today. There's some irony in the story of these cultures, but the Romans looked at her as Diana, and the Greeks called her Artemis. There's some debate whether it was the same goddess or not. More than likely, it was. We're going to see that Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and Leto. She had a twin sister named Apollo. Artemis was over mankind and animals, and it might intrigue you to know that Artemis had regulations on how you could hunt and kill game. Uh, We might say that she was one of the early humanitarians. Uh, It's not new to our time, but she thought you should treat uh, animals humanely. She was also a goddess of fertility, and the caretakers of the temple had to be eunuchs or virgin priestesses. If you keep your hand in uh, Revelation 3 and turn over to Acts chapter 19 for a moment, 19 for a moment. I want you to see uh, Paul's encounter with uh, Ephesus and Artemis as the church has been planting. Remember, to go back a little snapshot, the gospel comes, Christ, as he leaves, gives his disciples the so-called Great Commission to make disciples of all ethnos, all ethnic groups, all nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the world. So each of Paul's so-called missionary journeys, where he's planting churches, he's making disciples, the loop gets bigger, the geography gets larger. So now we're in Asia, and When he's in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts, he is going to encounter a large group of people that worship Artemis. And if we pick up the text in verse 24 of Acts 19, Acts 19, 24, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. There she is. 
was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Stop for just a second. Can't be bold dogmatic on this, but it seems as though Luke is recording. Um, if you've ever been to like um, the straw markets and, and different places where they have lots of kiosks, and after a while you've seen the same thing sold over and over again, there's, there's sort of a, a godfather who runs those things. And so the, the people, that the merchants that sell trinkets are overseen by someone who lets them rent those booths. Got it? So if you think of it in that respect, they would make idols of silver and, and wood and different how much you could afford. But Demetrius seems to be sort of this guy over a lot of these operations. The shrines may suggest, if you've been into perhaps a, a home that had a Buddhist shrine in it. I've seen, seen my wife's a uh, been a real estate and we've gone into homes that had like little shrines in them and sometimes people have those think of that in antiquity if you had the resources you could build a little shrine to artemis in your home so much more than just buying a little silver idol of some kind and putting it on a mantle on a shelf you could actually build a little worship center you might know some folks from different backgrounds who have little shrines in their homes little altars in their homes so this is a business to this goddess artemis verse uh, 25 <clears throat> He gathered together the workmen of similar trades. Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. He's about making money. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia. Where are these churches in, in Revelation? In Asia. Where are Sardis? In Asia. That Paul, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours would fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And a riot breaks out. So Artemis is this goddess, has been around a long time, was around Paul's time, and we don't know for sure. The name Demetrius is a very common Greek name. But the Demetrius of, of Acts 19, who is speaking there, the man who designed the temple in Sardis that we're reading about was also named Demetrius. Could just be a similar name, but it's intriguing to me nonetheless. The Christian church is also found archaeologically there. So we've got, a, we've got a school, we've got a synagogue for exiles, we've got the Temple of Artemis, and we have a Christian church. So we know by the time this is written, there was a physical structure there. Uh, some scholars and archaeologists uh, believe that it was active into the 14th century. So this message must have had some traction uh, when they heard this for the first time. Andrew Tate writes, the people of Sardis were idolaters. They worshipped the mother goddess Sibylle. Her worship was debasing, involving orgies at festivals held in her honor. Sins of the darkest impurity were committed on these occasions. If we think of a small community of Christians rescued from such, living in the midst of the grossest depravity, it may be wondered that the few members of the church in Sardis were not drawn away altogether, swallowed up in the great vortex. They're in the world but not of the world. They're living in a culture that worships idolatry, immorality, depravity, where shrines are all over, all the, the, the largest temple complex in their, the largest building in their city is a temple to Artemis, and there's a small Christian population hanging on by a thread. How are you in the world and not of the world? 
Well, let's look at the text in chapter 3, verse 1. First, we see Christ's condemnation. I know your deeds, that you have a name, you are alive, but you're dead. I know your deeds. Walverd writes to the omniscient Lord, nothing is hid from his searching gaze. Nothing is hid from his searching gaze. Do you remember when you were a child and that, that time of awareness when someone taught you your parents, Sunday school, you heard it somewhere that God sees everything you do. Do you remember that? I vividly, I don't know how old I was, but I can still remember as a kid going, you mean God sees everything I do? And this panic sort of going across me. When our children were younger, and uh, you know, sometimes you have this um, very soft hearted, sensitive, natured son or daughter, and when they do something wrong, they come and say, Mom, Dad, will you forgive me? I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I, you know, and they, they have a heavy, guilty conscience. You know, if you have one like that, bless God. Bless God. Everybody deserves one like that. Then you get the other ones who are just proficient liars. I mean, they're good at lying. They know how to lie. They know how to deceive. You could have videotapes, smoking gun, fingerprints, eyewitnesses. They're going to look you in the eye and they're going to lie to you. As a parent, of course, your goal is to teach your children to be truth tellers, to be honest, to come clean. And as we all parent our kids, right, we say, look, if you tell us the truth now, it's a lot easier. You perpetuate the lie, it gets a lot tougher. Don't tell mommy they lies. It's important. We want them to grow and become an adult who tells the truth, who's truthful, who owns their situation. So one of our children, I won't name the perpetrator, of course, but one of our children uh, had a little bit of trouble with this. And I remember uh, praying these uh, prayers, these helpless, you know, as the parent, you're helpless. What do you do? You know they're lying. You know, they look you in the eye. You can tell they're lying. You just can't prove it, right? And so I remember praying for said child with my hands on the said child's back saying, Dear Jesus, thank you that you see everything we do. No thing escapes your eyes. You know everything we do. Help mommy and daddy to teach this young person to love you and to be a truth teller and tell the truth and be honest. And when they, I mean, just, you're laying it on thick as you can, man. You're just laying that thing on. And if mommy or daddy are wrong, show mommy and daddy that they're wrong. So then how to raise them because we want this boy, this girl to become a man, a woman of God. And, and, you know, just you, heavy as you can. You see everything. And then you go, amen, and leave the room. And that poor kid's eyes are like this all night long. God knows everything I do. I'm somewhat chagrined and embarrassed to say it was probably in my 20s when this really hit me. God doesn't merely see our deeds. He knows our every thought. He knows everything between my temples and everything beneath the cavity of my chest. Everyone who walked in this room today, whether you knew it or not, acknowledged you're a sinner. We wouldn't be here if we weren't sinners, right? We're sinners in need of help. We sin all the time. And as we get older and more sophisticated in our sin life, and hopefully mature, we probably don't act out on as many sins as we once did or would like to. But it all goes on underneath my chest, and it all goes on between this part of my head. Does that frustrate you? How am I in the world but not of it? None of us wants to dwell on sin, money, sex, and power. None of us wants to be angry at the universe. None of us wants to be righteous and right all the time, but that's who we are. And our thoughts, our deeds are one expression, 
But Christ knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows our thoughts. It's kind of terrifying. As Walvard wrote, to the omniscient Lord, nothing is hid from his searching gaze. We might amend it from our omniscient Lord. He knows everything about us all the time. Can't live legalistically. Can't live licentiously. What does it mean to be in liberty? Get out of the pendulum. What does it mean to live a mature, faithful life in the world and not of the world? Well, he continues uh, condemning them. You have a name, but you're alive, but you're dead. Um, Sardis had a reputation for being a good church. When it started, and let's just say for conversation's sake, Paul or his disciples started the church of Sardis. We know it's got to be a first or second generation apostle disciple that began these churches. So he started this church, or his, his disciples did, and at one point they were doing the right thing. They had a facility. They were, they were being a good church, sharing the gospel. And then they became spiritually dead. When I drive around parts of older parts of Nashville, I marvel at these gorgeous churches. I mean, some of these churches are just spectacular. And I, you know, we're friends here, man. I just lust. I go, why can't we have a church like that? I mean, they're so beautiful and stately, and they're busy. I mean, goodness gracious, some of those churches, they're busy all day and all night and all weekend. There's cars coming and traffic jams around. I go, man, look at this beautiful facility. And then my sinful soul goes, why did the liberals have all the great churches? How come the liberals all have all the best buildings? If we were to go back in time when those churches started, they weren't liberal. They probably believed the gospel. They probably had Bible studies, which would be few and far between today. They had men and women that wrote checks and gave generously and sacrificially to build those magnificent. Today you couldn't buy. They're so expensive. And today they're so busy and active. If you really want to study some of this, it's striking that a lot of them have Ionic, Doric, or Corinthian columns. Columns that held up the worship of idolatry in the Greek culture, and they patterned their buildings in antiquity after idolatry. Whenever you see a Corinthian, Doric, or Ionic column, if you don't know what those are, you didn't pay attention in their architecture class. The columns haven't changed at all. Go see our, our Nashville concrete representation you know, downtown sometime and look at the columns. We're holding up the worship of Greek gods and goddesses. Interesting, isn't it? What do they believe? I'm sure there's some great men and women of faith in those buildings. Don't hear me wholesale. But I don't know how many people drive by a warehouse or a barn and go, ooh, look at that cool barn. Ooh, look at that cool warehouse. That's not the point. Sardis, you were busy and active and growing for Christ. Now you're dead. Now you're dead. Tim's lyrics so well underscore that picture. You look good on the outside. Andrew Tate and his condemnation of the church reminds us the grossest depravity. William Barclay adds the danger of the death of a church is when it begins to worship its past. More concerned with forms than life. It loves systems more than Christ. It is more concerned with material than spiritual things. What Christ thinks 
of his church is more important than the activity or the building. Are we in the world and not of the world? Well, his warning in verses 2 and 3, wake up, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have found, not found, your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what, at what hour I will come to you. Christ calls the church of Sardis alive but dead. You're busy, you're active, but spiritually you're dead. But he addresses a few that are still spiritually active, still spiritually alive. Remember, as a frequent admonition in Scripture, we talked many times about do not fear, don't be afraid, be strong and have courage. Uh, remember and do not forget our other common commands throughout the Bible. And again, we miss some things because they're repetitive and obvious. If the Bible says remember, what's the implication? We forget. Remember, remember, remember. Now some of you are about to take your kids off to college. Some of you maybe have been through this experience. It's the first one is always... Uh, fascinating experience you take your your little son or daughter who was this big and yesterday you blinked and now they're going off to college Cindy and I were with a group of people recently a couple uh, we had just met at that at, at that dinner and uh, we were talking and she was sending her 18 year old off to college this fall and uh, she started telling me she was worried about it, anxious and, and nervous about sending her kid off to college and uh, of course she didn't ask me my advice but I thought it was a good time to give some and so I said, uh, I said, you know, we, we've done this a couple times. And uh, I said, let, let, me, let me tell you, um, take your son off to college and let me give you one piece of advice. When, when you drop him off, say what you're going to say, you know, tell him, encourage him. But then don't call him or email him or text him. Leave him alone and don't go see him unless there's a parent day. Don't go visit him unless there's a and do not have him come home until there's a bona fide holiday. And, and, and her face was just going as I was saying this. So I just kept at it, of course. And, and she's, I don't know if I could do that. And I said, you need to let him become a free agent. He's got to figure it out. And um, I remember when we took our daughter, when Cindy and I, many, many years ago, brought Hannah from Virginia down to Belmont the first semester. And we packed all our stuff up in the van. Our second daughter, Jessie, came to help us. Our two children were too small to really help, so we left them with some friends. And we drove down here, and we got her. I mean, it's a dorm room, right? It's an 8 by 10 dorm room. How many things can you arrange in an 8 by 10 room? But, boy, we arranged it. And I think we made three trips to the Walmart, which at that time was on the other side of Nashville. And, uh, and I mean, my wife was having a hard time leaving, and Jessie was having a hard time leaving. I said, we have to leave. time to go. And uh, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. What are we doing? Remember. Don't forget. I want you to be prepared. Don't forget. What did they received and heard? The gospel. The Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. The apostolic teaching. They were at least, if not on, if they didn't hear it first person, they heard it right after that from these apostles. I, we can over-romanticize that, but to me it's very intriguing if John discipled Polycarp. It's just real interesting to think about one of the disciples who was with Christ was teaching us how to do church. If Paul was teaching a group of disciples and how they, he shepherded them in planting these churches in Asia, that's pretty interesting to me. We can over-romanticize it. 
still the same gospel. But they'd heard these things. They knew these things. That Christ was going to return one day. They were to make disciples of all nations. You've forgotten. If Ephesus lost her first love, Sardis lost her first mission. Observe, keep it, and repent. Wake up and obey what you know. Sardis, if they do not repent, judgment is going to come like a thief. The picture here is of a surprise, not the rapture. It's of a surprise, something that's going to break in and quickly occur. Before you know it, the good things are gone. A reminder of invasions probably that they had had in their history. Wake up. Remember what you've heard, what you've received. Don't forget. Why are you here? Again, in recent days, a lot of us are talking about politics and the election, and it's just, it's a very interesting time if you're into any of this up to watch what's going on in politics. Cindy and I have been junkies for a long time, and this season of our life is changing as we're watching it. It's like, how do you even explain what's going on? It's just an interesting time, and people want to talk a lot about it. It occurred to me a few weeks back, nothing new, you've heard this before, reminding myself what I know. Jesus Christ is not walking and pacing heaven's floor, wringing his hands about who's going to be in the White House. Jesus doesn't sleep, but for our vernacular, he's not losing sleep over what's going on. He's a sovereign king of the universe. Get a perspective on this, men and women. America, as countries go in the world, is a toddler Maybe bumping up to adolescence. Maybe that explains our political system. A bunch of juvenile delinquents are running for office, maybe. I don't know. We're adolescents. Europe, China, Egypt, Rome, for goodness sakes. These were world powers for hundreds of years. What are we, 239 this year? We're barely toddling. We think we're so He's the sovereign. Not, you know what? There are certain people I'd love to put in the White House, just like you might. They're not going to make it the world the way Christ wants it. Sure, there's some moral people and good people, and I, I will tell you like everybody, vote, vote, vote. Be sure you do. You know, you'll never hear me say abdicate. Well, I can't say never. I don't think you'll ever hear some. My hope is not who ends up there. My hope's in Christ. Because I'm in the world not of the world. You're in the world, not of the world. How do we press on? Christ is on his throne. How does his church live in the world, not of the world? We might be persecuted. We might be told we can't say or do certain things. Are we going to be in the world or not of it? Well, he addresses the few, verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Literally, in your Bible, there's probably a little marginal note. The word people is names, which I kind of like. But you have a few names. I know them by names. I could, I could tick them off real quickly. There's a dozen or so by names, I could tell you, who have not soiled their garments. Uh, Asia Minor, there were signs in the Greek culture there warning you not to go worship the Greek gods and goddesses with soiled garments. And so there's a number of word plays and probably 
contextual stories going on here. We don't want to press them too hard, but I think it's pretty interesting. Sardis was known for fabrics and dye. If any of you have been to market, people go to Atlanta, go to market, or people go to Dallas and go to market, and they buy lots of fabrics or clothing for pre-seasonal sales and stuff. So think of Sardis as a place you went and brought, bought fabrics because they were renowned for their dyes and fabrics. In fact, it wouldn't be too far of an illustration or rather an uh, 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 illustration to say having a label like Sardis would be like Neiman's or Nordstrom. Sardis was known for its fabric and dye. And he says to Sardis, some of your garments are soiled. Some of them aren't. And it was a common knowledge. You didn't go to, to church to worship the goddesses with soiled garments. And Christ says, some who have not soiled their garments will walk with me, for they are worthy. Um, a fascinating study on our righteous deeds of the saints and what we do in righteousness that matters to God and what we can do in legalism that doesn't matter to God. That's for a whole other series, but it's an important tension to hold. Well, he makes a promise to them. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A threefold promise. First, the overcomer will receive white garments, meaning he or she will not be uh, under the condemnation of sin. They will be white. Now let's take a little bit of a commercial break here. White garments in the scripture. Why does a bride wear a white dress? Because it's a Western tradition of virginity, of beauty, of splendor. Uh, it's a great business part of our economy. The wedding dresses is a huge uh, business for our country. Is that why we have white dresses? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just also as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. Paul is telling the believers in Ephesus in that letter, Christ is going to present the church to himself having no spot or wrinkle. Little, little hint there. Biblical theology built the wedding ceremony, not a Western culture or even European culture. And more pertinent to our story in Revelation 19 verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. When I officiate a wedding, I start with Genesis, that God made man and woman in his image, and that two became one flesh. And then I talk about marriage and theology and the story. I look at these two passages. I explain them a little bit, Ephesians and Revelation. The Bible begins with a wedding, has story and instruction and theology about a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. In Revelation 19, who's the bride? Who's the bride? The church. Who's the groom? Christ. Man and woman in the beginning are emulating an institution made by God to represent the image of God. Male and female come together to become one flesh, a great mystery. 
taught all through Scripture. The culmination of salvation history as a wedding of Christ and his church. And the bride has made herself ready, white and clean. Why does the bride wear white? Because Scripture depicts the bride being spotless and without stain, no soiled garments. I don't know if you'd ever see a tie-dye wedding dress. Maybe there's one in the 70s. Not in the kingdom. The first part of the promise is the faithful are promised that they'll be clean, that their sins are forgiven, they'll be clothed in white. Secondly, the assurance of their relationship with Christ. The book of life raises a lot of questions. Let me just say, it seems best to understand in this context, the capital of the Persian and Seleucid empires was Sardis for a period of time, and they had the records. Think about the capital of any state. They hold the governing records. And in antiquity, those records uh, would include your citizenship, whether you were a criminal you paid taxes and so forth. If you're a criminal, you were taken off the registry. You know, today in America, if you commit a felony, you cannot vote. You're taken off the voting registry. Do you know that until you're dead, you are going to pay taxes? You're on a registry to pay taxes when you die. So death and taxes takes you off the registry. So in antiquity, they would probably have understood that that if a person was a criminal, they're taken off the registry, off the book. If they die, of course, they quit sending you IRS bills. You're, you're done. You're gone. So for Sardis, they're assured that their, their names will not be removed because they're in right relationship. And thirdly, they will be confessed by Christ before his Father and his angels. And a confessional is a reaffirming declaration of their citizenship in heaven. We've, we've talked about this, Lloyd, Bill, Rob, and I, many times over the years, that when you and I stand before God, Christ is our intercessor who makes confession on our behalf. Our good works don't mean a thing. Whether it's legalism or licentiousness, we are only clothed in Christ to be able to enter heaven. And it's Christ's confessional. I died for these people. I love them. I sacrificed my life. My blood made the foulest clean. My blood is the only redemption. Once and for all, I have redeemed these people. And I am confessing before you, I obeyed you, Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross, to redeem for you your own people back to you, my bride. And so the confessional is, a, is a, an important theological construct in this passage. Well, how do you put this all together? Let me just suggest a couple things. Number one, if Christ knows our deeds and our thoughts, maybe you need to sit with that sometime this week. Um, Bill spoke of it at great length about repentance. Um, I think in the Christian body in general, we're pretty quick to repent. We're pretty knee-jerk to ignore our sin we're pretty cavalier because we know we're forgiven no matter what we do. God's going to forgive us in grace and mercy. And um, I just think it would be helpful if we all sit with our sin. He knows it. He's not mad at you. He's not angry at you. He's not kicking heaven's floor because you and I sin. He loves you. We take too lightly the consequence of our sin, and we take too lightly the meaning of forgiveness. And that's one of the challenges, I think, of being in the world and not of the world, is that we become of the world. Because 
Everybody has affairs. Everybody does this. Everybody does that. Everybody steals. Everybody lies. Everybody sort of cheats on the edges of life. It's just our culture. We're in the world and we're of it. How are we otherworldly people? The great part of it is, again, as Tim wrote so wonderfully, he loves us, and you're gonna, it's going to be hollow everywhere else, but there's fulfillment there. There's real relationship there. And second and lastly is wake up and remember. Wake up and remember. I love, I'm a simple guy at heart. I really am. When Scripture says, don't forget, remember, be strong, be courageous, I need to be reminded of those things. And I suspect you do too. Remember your calling. Remember your first love. Remember your mission. The faithful are assured of a relationship with Jesus Christ. An intimate relationship. The faithful are invited to have that relationship here and now. Not just there and then. What a sad life to live. Waiting for it all to be good at the end. As I've quoted many times, one of my professors often said, Michael, if you were never more ready for heaven than the day you were saved, why are you still here? Why are you still here? What are you doing right now with what he's given you? It's a good question for all of us to think about. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for your grace that abounds. We thank you that you do care about us in ways we cannot fathom. We thank you that you're not an anxious or worried or vengeful God. For the believer in Christ, you are our refuge, our rock, our redeemer. You are our savior, our helper, our friend. You are our physician, our wonderful counselor, our father. You love us far beyond human explanation. Help us to live in the world, not of it. Help us to know we are otherworldly ambassadors. We're traveling through this life as the best a clean bus station. It's not our home. Help us to enjoy the liberty we do have, but not to turn it into a shrine because it is temporary. And may we live as though we were living for you and not merely for ourselves and for ease. Give us the balance between enjoying the stuff of life and living faithfully for you. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.